Recorded from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, it's the Last Writing Podcast. I'm Adam Dietz. Happy Friday. That's when I'm recording. Uh, happy day to you whenever you're listening. The Last Writing Podcast is a podcast dedicated to those who dedicate themselves to the craft of writing. Every two weeks, I'm going to be talking to a different writer from a different genre. We're going to get into process, writing habits, how they built their voice, and so on. In addition to the Last Writing Podcast, I've also launched the Last Writing Journal, which, uh, to be honest, hasn't hasn't taken off like I might have hoped so far, but uh, it remains a presence on the lastwritingpodcast.com website. The Last Writing Journal is meant to be a publication designed to give voice to fledgling writers. If you're a young writer looking for a place to put your work, please consider the Last Writing Journal. More information can be found on the website in terms of submission information and so on, but um, for now, the Last Writing Journal lives... Uh, hopefully we can get some some submissions here in the near future. Last week I spoke to Randall Colburn. Uh, thanks to Randall for coming on and giving me a, a good chunk of time. That was a fun one. Randall and I talked about freelance writing, pop culture work, working for the AV Club, and a little bit of Stephen King and, and his own podcasting work as well. Uh, that was a that was a fun conversation, and I hope you enjoyed uh, that one. This week talking to novelist and writer Teddy Wayne. Teddy is the author of four books, Capitoil, The Love Song of Johnny Valentine, Loner, and most recently, Apartment. Uh, Apartment was a New York Times editor's choice, as well as being named a most anticipated book by the New York Times, Vogue, Boston Globe, Salon, and so on and so forth. It was one of my favorite books of 2020, to be sure. In addition to the novel writing, Teddy is also a frequent contributor to The New Yorker, McSweeney's, and uh, formerly was the columnist for the New York Times style section article, Future Tense, which talked about uh, technology and culture. Um, This conversation with Teddy, we go through quite a bit. We talk about the publication process of apartments, talk about his general writing habits, dealing with negative reviews, and uh, adapting your own work for the screen. Teddy also gives some helpful advice on uh, considering your own novel writing in terms of a, a daily sort of thing instead of thinking about it in the, this vast sense, sort of breaking things down, thinking about it on a word count daily basis. He'll explain it better than I do, obviously. Um, but this was a fun one. Teddy's a real nice guy. I appreciate the time. Without further ado, let's get into that conversation. Can you hear me? I can, yes. Oh, good. Great. Perfect. So you're moving. We just moved um, a week ago. We were out uh, in, during the pandemic. We gave up our apartment, put our stuff in storage. Um, we're living in Western Massachusetts on a farm with my wife, our two young kids, one of whom was born just before the pandemic, her two sisters and her mom and a dog and a cat in a crowded house yeah. and just moved back to Brooklyn a week ago. Pro- probably feels good to be back. It does. Yeah. And, and things feel semi-normal now. Right. So it's... We've been, we were back and forth a little bit throughout the pandemic, but now we're back for sort of hopefully for good. Yeah, right. Definitely. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm about to move here in the next couple of weeks as well. So I, uh, as far as the, the chaos of moving, I can, I can definitely yeah. relate. Where are you? What, what city? I'm in Milwaukee. Okay. Yep. Yep. So cream city. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So um, last writing podcast, we're still pretty early in the run, but uh, we're talking about process, kind of writing habits, and just sort of generally uh, getting someone's story, things that have worked for them, et cetera. Yeah. Cool. Sounds good. All right. So uh, let's kind of start with, uh, you know, your early days in writing. You know, when did you kind of start writing? How did you build your voice? And sort of what was that early work like? Uh, so I'd say the 
earliest dedicated attempts at creative writing were uh, senior year of high school. I started writing some spec sitcom scripts for Seinfeld just for fun. <laughs> I like the show. Yeah. I wrote a few of them. And then in college, I, I'd also taken up a creative writing class, but nothing too serious, nothing I'd done pursued on my own. In college, I started looking at screenwriting a little more seriously and wrote some screenplays starting freshman year of college. Um, always with the mind that I'd become a fiction writer later, but I think I was too daunted by the, the prospect of writing, certainly a novel, but even maybe short stories at that point. Um, continued the screenwriting thing for a little while into my early 20s, and then decided to ditch it, nothing was happening, and started focusing on fiction full time. Um, so I wrote a novel on my own, which got me an agent, got me into MFA program, it didn't get published, which is definitely for the best in hindsight. Uh, and then that point there, from that point on, I've just been a fiction track. And I've now lately, uh, last few years, uh, gotten back into and start pursuing a screenwriting career as a parallel track. Yeah, definitely. I want to talk about the screenwriting uh, a little bit later on. But uh, what? tell me about the Seinfeld spec scripts. What kind of trouble did Kramer get into? Uh, I only remember one of them. It was, I think, a... So dinner parties lying was the the main plot engine of it uh there's some some deceptions everyone was lying to each other i don't remember anything else you know for an 18 year old 17 year old not a terrible effort it it certainly would not have passed muster on the screen but uh it was fun to do and you know i also started doing this kind of humor writing in my 20s after college as well and have been doing that ever since short form humor prose writing so I think it was my start of trying to write comedy on the page and figure out how to do that. Yeah, definitely. Who did you read back in the day when you were young? Um, who were your, who were kind of your authors? You know, the, the people who are still, to an extent, the the, the I don't say linchpins, but the the touchstones, I guess, is the better word. Um, even if I don't return to their work, Salinger, DeLillo, Nabokov, Hemingway, um, kind of classic 20th century. American or American-ish, in the case of Nabokov, writers um, who I think were formative and I don't think I've read any of them much lately, but I think those four and and others associated with that um, are are sort of their DNAs in everything I write still to this point. Yeah, I actually just just finished uh, Nine Stories by uh, the J.D. Salinger collection recently and, you know, obviously blown away but uh yeah he is really good he's underrated almost because of how popular catching the rye was yeah. has been i think a little less so now i think um people think of him as a almost like a young adult author uh when he just writes some of the most complex and beautiful prose especially out there he is a superb stylist and as is Nabokov, of course um and i think that's partly what drew me to them that these guys are doing things with the language that I certainly couldn't do back then. I can't do now either. No one can. But as an 18 year old or, or younger, just learning how to read and how to write, um, their facility with, with language was and remains unparalleled. Yeah, definitely. Agreed. In terms of your own sort of work process, um, if you were to describe it, you know, where do you work and, and how are, are you sort of habitual in what you do? Um, when you're writing, is there uh, a number of characters you're trying to get in a certain day, page numbers, things like that? Yeah, uh, well, it's all been thrown off a bit by the pandemic, but even without it, 
it's also been thrown off by the fact that my wife and I have two young kids now, a one and a half year old and a three year old. So uh, the writing time has been truncated to nap time for my <laughs> three year old, right. one to four p.m. And even then, not always, because sometimes I'm forced to then take the the baby out somewhere. So it's you know limited number of hours per day, but I do try to get something in every day. Therefore, and I've always thought that it's best to work if not every day, then almost every day to treat it like a real job, Monday through Friday. Um, best to have some kind of set schedule, I think, too. I think the, uh, you know, quote, inspirations for amateurs, the rest of us show up to work, is applicable that if you just force yourself to go to work or sit down at your desk for a few hours a day, you'll get things done. Uh, whereas waiting around for lightning to strike is, is tenuous and doesn't yield that much. Um, when I'm writing new material, I think I aim for about 500 words a day. feels like a satisfying output. Uh, and if I get more than that, it's, it's a bonus. If you do that, 500 pages is two, 500 words rather is two pages. All it takes is 150 sessions of those to have a substantial size novel, uh, or at least a first draft. And that's a, a, a feasible amount uh, and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel even from starting off from nowhere if you do that um and i'd say first drafts of novels i've written have ranged from three to eight months maybe but never beyond eight months for the first draft which is therefore like you know it's it's a daunting still prospect to write a novel but uh to know it probably won't be longer than eight months till you have a document that is you know meaningful uh, makes the makes the process easier. Whereas if I were just writing when I felt like it, you know, it could take years and years. Yeah, definitely. Um, when I revise, it's less about that because it's harder to measure word count. But I'm I'm currently polishing what I hope is the final draft of a new novel, and I found I can do about ten pages double spaced, ten pages single spaced a day um, total. Where I'm going through this is now the final leg where I'm doing just sentence revisions and purely looking at language. Um, so 10 single space pages a day seems to be the limit for until I either run out of time or run out of mental stamina. Um, but yeah, I, I have other processes in place too. If you're thinking about sort of how do I go about tackling it? Um, I certainly outline books beforehand, not the most detailed outlines in the world. I've seen some writers who have spreadsheets. I don't do that. Just have a word document with, bullet points for where the what, what plot events are next. Um, when I revise, I get, I send my book to different readers in successive waves. And with each new reader, I'll, I'll take notes on what they say, combine them or organize the notes in a way that feels like or this, these are the things I have to focus on for say this character or this plot idea and do like a to-do checklist. Mm -hmm. And again, eliminating the, the sort of uh, gauzy, ethereal, artistic aura from it and making him feel like yeah. just a, a series of tasks, I think is helpful. Both, it's less pretentious, so I can feel a little, more, <laughs> yeah. feel a little better about myself, but also uh, I think you get things done more when you just look at it as like, I mean, as I said, right now we're moving and we have all these tasks and the only way to do it is by listing what are you have to do and do these things. Um, I had to snake a toilet this morning. So my three-year-old threw a bar of soap in the toilet. Oh, no. So I had to buy, I had to go to the hardware store, buy it, 
read how to do it. And I, I managed to pull it off. I'm, I'm quite proud of this, but um, you know, you have to have the, these things written out or else I would never have gone around to buying, I would have gone around to getting this. You need to have a functioning toilet, but <laughs> in general, but if you think of it that way, that you know, you, these problems in a manuscript are sort of like a toilet clog and you just have to tackle them. And if you're waiting for someone else to clear it, it won't happen. I guess you could call a plumber or call a, a serious editor who might do it for you, but otherwise you have to do these things on your own and it helps to have a, a list um, guiding you. Right, yeah, it certainly makes things feel less daunting when you're starting out, I would imagine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you, uh, when you published uh, Capitoil, Capitoil in uh, 2010, what was something about kind of the publication process that surprised you or that you hadn't previously thought about before that? Well, you, the main thing is when you're a first time writer, uh, and I'd been you know, publishing things in periodicals before that, so I wasn't totally new to the idea of publishing something. But publishing a book is much more vulnerable, uh, especially I think a novel. And it, it, it goes from a Word document on your computer that you never think will see the light of day. And at that point, by the way, I, I failed, tried and failed to sell a previous novel. Um, and I'd also tried and failed to sell Capitoil in a previous draft, previous version of it. So I really didn't think it would get published. And I was obviously hugely happy and grateful and surprised it did. But because of that, you write in such a way that feels more innocent um, because you're not expecting anyone to ever read it. And then when it does come out, it can be um, a little frightening just to see what happens to in the world, whether that means there might be bad reviews. There weren't any at that point because it was a small book. And so the only people who would review it were going to do it if they had positive things to say. Um, but it, or get ignored, which it kind of was partially ignored at that point too, uh, which is maybe more devastating to, to do all this work and what happens to 99% of books, not that they get savaged, they just get dismissed or, right. or overlooked. Um, but though I miss, what I miss about it is that feeling of, of innocence and lack of expectation while writing, which is you cannot recreate it. I guess there are some people who do what they can as published writers to try to resituate themselves in that perspective. But I think once you know that something will probably get published, it does affect inevitably how you write, even if mm. you'd like to think it doesn't. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I actually, I read a quote. Um, I don't have the quote offhand, but it was uh, when you were circling the idea of, of uh, the love song of Johnny Valentine and how you kind of came to that idea because there was certain a vulnerability with, you know, putting your writing out in the world and, you know, one negative Amazon review maybe would send you in a t tailspin or something you would you'd think about uh, over time. Yeah. Is that sort of still the case for you? How, how cognizant are you uh, of reviews and has that changed? I have a fairly thick skin. It, it, if I get upset about something, it's only for the, the prospects it, it then foretells for the book rather than necessarily my own feeling um, or my own emotional, my own ego, let's mm -hmm. say. Uh, so I think for the first book, I'm sure it was probably more of an of a ego-based um, proposition where a bad review or a good review would make me feel worse or better about myself. Mm -hmm. And now I think it's less about my feeling about myself and more just I would like the book to quote unquote, do well so that I can continue to be able to write books uh, and that it's a viable um, 
location for me. But, uh, you know, I, then again, if I think I got a, a deadly hatchet job somewhere prominent, it, I'm sure it would be upsetting. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure. I, mean, I, I don't think probably would ever get used to that necessarily. Yeah. Um, I, I try, I should say, I, I tried early on to take the advice that I've heard many times, which is, if you believe what they say about you, when they like you, you'll believe it when they don't like you. Right. And my feeling has evolved somewhat to thinking that if someone doesn't like the book you wrote, as long as you feel good about it, you should think of that as it wasn't the book for them, right. rather than it's a failure of a book. Uh, and if someone does like it, it somehow was a book for them, not that it was a great book too. And I think that's how I, I view it. I, most books that are hailed, I don't like just by, on, on average. And most, and not most, but many books I've loved have been ignored. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's taste is highly subjective. And uh, on top of that, I'd say the books that, that seem to get are crowd pleasers, I think are often worse. So maybe you can take yeah. a, a kind of perverse pride in, in people not liking your work. <laughs> maybe a defensive perverse pride, but I think it's, there's something to be said for the stuff I love most are the gems that I feel are, are truly underappreciated. Yeah, no, I, I definitely buy that. So usually, you know, when I say usually, I mean like the five episodes we've done before, but um, try to pick a specific piece and kind of go A to Z through the process. You know, that's been like comedy articles so far and much shorter things. But um, if we can try to do kind of a truncated version of that. So uh, from sort of the impetus of uh, apartments in your mind to it hitting the bookshelves or being available on Amazon, you know, could you sort of walk through some of the major steps that you followed, uh, maybe focusing on, again, like parts of the process that um, people might not necessarily know about or maybe don't get as much, you know, play? Yeah, this one, it was a kind of laborious, torturous and tortuous process um, in that I had been writing a 500 plus page novel that was still not being finished. That was about the relationship, the friendship between two young men who were writers and attract them over two decades, I, I think was, was the, going to be the start to finish, starting with them in grad school, ending with them as middle-aged men. Um, as I said, 500 plus pages still not finished, probably would have been 600 pages when done. I sent it to my agent and also had my wife, who's a writer, read it. Neither of them was very enthusiastic about it. And I decided, all right, let me swallow my pride. I'd only, I'd been working on it for about a year, so it wasn't like I'd been spending eight years of my life on this thing. But I, I gave it up. I recognized it was not working. I kind of knew that as I was writing it too, but was trying to delude myself. And the miraculous thing about, uh, I think probably other areas of life too, but writing is that once you throw something out or decide you're done with it, it does clear space in your head for something new. So that very night I threw it out. I, went, I remember we had to go out that night to some event I was a little bit depressed about what had happened. Came back, went to sleep. I woke up at three or four in the morning with an idea about writing something set in Stuyvesant Town, the the, uh, apartment complex, massive apartment complex in lower Manhattan that I lived in for on and off for 14 years. Um, And it's a weird place. It was my grandmother's apartment. It was rent stabilized. It was fairly cheap for New York City, at least. Still expensive for the rest of the country. 
And uh, I guess I can admit this, admit this now, I wasn't totally supposed to be there. <laughs> and so I thought this could be an interesting setting for a novel. And I started writing it, just a description of the, of the apartment itself. And then I thought maybe I could take something from that previous novel I jettisoned about the two young men and put it into this setting. And so I did, I reworked the men, I changed them quite a bit, um, especially the main character. The secondary character, Billy, was kind of the same, a similar working class, Midwestern, blue collar, highly talented, but socially not well-connected mm-hmm. writer. The protagonist uh, needed a lot of work from the, from the first version and specifically um, making him more alienated and, and lonely was the, the major thrust of that. So that was the, the major revision. You could think of that first book as the first draft almost yeah. and what came to be the second draft. Then I wrote, a, wrote the novel, you know, this kind of process I described before of outlining, figuring out a, a plot, the fact that they were living in a place that they're supposed to not be there, supposed to not be in, added this other potential plot element of, of hiding where they were and his needing to stay in this place and to keep his identity somewhat hidden there. Um, that said, it still took another major revision after the book was done and specifically some things about the, the writer, the, the protagonist, um, with the help of my editor, my book editor, Lisa Mayer at Bloomsbury, uh, and uh, Grace McNamee, uh, her assistant at the time. Um, both were instrumental in helping me reconfigure how things were. So I'd say there was a major overhaul from that first 500-page version to what was next, and then a pretty big overhaul again, on top of all the other smaller you know, revisions you make. Uh, and the whole process took, I believe, maybe two, two and a half years, which is about usually what it takes, uh, I've found, for most books uh, from start to finish. You know, as, as I said, the first draft is often three to eight months or always has been three to eight months. But the entire book seems to be a minimum minimum of two years. Yeah. Wow. That's yeah, that's uh... I guess that is a good way to look at it, though, in terms of, uh, you know, because that was a question I was going to ask you. I had read about you um, having that 500 page book that you sort of had to leave. But I suppose, generally speaking, when that happens with authors, elements of whatever they left are going to end up in other work, at least. In some yes. Way. And fortunately, it was able to be funneled directly into this yeah. next thing. But um, that, that book needed to shed a lot of its fat yeah. and, and also needed a refocusing on what was important and interesting about these two guys 500 plus pages you can imagine sprawling and unfocused yeah. and the end result of the apartment is only 195 pages i think yeah. so a much tighter aperture uh and a, i think a much better novel for, for it definitely I, I i love department that was why i wanted Thank to you. talk to you i was a huge fan one of my favorite books of last year um in terms of the you know i, I grew up in, in michigan i live in the midwest now the rent controlled uh aspect is just completely was completely foreign to me i mean i'd I'd heard about it in tv shows and movies but i just thought that that in of itself is a really fascinating idea to me yeah i mean it doesn't matter elsewhere in the country as much because it's fairly cheap or or compared to new york city at least and new york is this mecca uh, especially in the 90s when the novel said manhattan would be now be brooklyn for young aspiring artists so they want to live there but it's impossible to afford it uh, but this protagonist has this this gift of a rent stabilized apartment, the equivalent of a previous 
century of having a major inheritance say yeah. the, the catch being that it's illegal and it's not supposed to have it so it's it's kind of these golden handcuffs that you can never leave because it's too good a deal to pass up but he can't quite be himself either he can't be open about where he lives either because if he ever gets caught he'll, he'll be evicted right definitely in terms of the decision to not name the the main character the the mm-hmm. protagonist was that a decision just to sort of make it more of an everyman? Is it, is it maybe like a, I was thinking last night, is it like a fight club uh, homage or something? But uh, what, what was the, what was the choice like there? It was the, so in that first 500 page novel, the, the, he had, did have a name. Um, and it was also third person, that first novel. This apartment's first person, not giving him a name, but giving Billy a name, felt important that the, the main, the protagonist, the narrator, feels anonymous and does not feel as though he's going to ever leave legacy anywhere. And by not even giving him a name, it sort of reinforces that idea. Whereas Billy is a, is a character, has a charismatic person in the world who is making his presence known and will leave a stamp through his works, through offspring and through various other means. And he gets the honor of a name. So it felt like a way to reaffirm the, the tragedy of this guy's existence that even in his own novel that he narrates, he doesn't get a name. Yeah. There have been a lot of um, unnamed narrators in fiction in recent years, especially. Usually it's because it's a, a piece of autofiction where the writer is writing something that's so obviously autobiographical, it would seem maybe silly to give it the character a different name yeah. or sometimes to get their own name. But um, this is not autofiction, I should stress. Uh, so this was, a, I think, a different idea about more his, 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 his fundamental anonymity rather than anything else. Yeah, oddly enough, it wasn't something that really dawned on me until I was finished. I don't know, I guess, perhaps I'm dense or something, but it just... No, no, no. A lot yeah. of people, even I remember my agent yeah. first time talking about it said, and his, he's like, a, does he have, did I miss his name? Yeah, right. No, no, that's, that should be how you think of it, that it's not conspicuous that you don't know his name but the U.S. can get your entire novel narrated by this guy and, and then realize you never even learned his name. Right, good, good. I like that reading better than me just being careless. Um, <laughs> so with, uh, in terms of apartment, you have a pretty fleshed out uh, like writing program, grad school setting. Uh, how much of your own experience are you drawing from with that? The only real part, I went to Washington University in St. Louis um, in the mid 2000s. This guy goes to Columbia in the mid 90s. I taught at Columbia for one year, um, so it was useful. I could have some sense of the geography, but otherwise, um, not much. The only real thing I drew from was uh, I did have a couple of harsh workshops my first year, and the feeling, and just you know, maybe two, possibly three, at least two, that were notably harsh. Um, and it was painful. And I remember, you know, I was 20 in my mid twenties and still very new to, to the writing game and would leave these fairly devastating workshops thinking I was going to give up writing and this is not going to work out for me. And that emotional experience was, was formative for writing about this guy in his workshops where he gets continually negative reviews. And, you know, in his case, it, it does, reaffirm that maybe he's not meant for this. Um, and it actually is the case for him. I hope it's not the case for me that I haven't just fooled everyone, but uh, it, it, it does teach him or, or tell him 
what he suspects about himself, which is that he's not genuinely talented. He knows how to write. He can write sentences. He's not incompetent, but he's not, not a natural born writer the way that, that Billy is. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, uh, no, I wouldn't say other parts of it. I, it was overall a supportive, nourishing atmosphere. Um, people were generally very friendly and encouraging each other. Certainly the professors were. Um, so it was more those, I, I guess it worked out that I had those two d- difficult workshops or however many it was, because had it not been for that, I think uh, I might not have been able to write these scenes. But more than that, I think it's good to have a couple of really uh, people telling you you're not writing good good mm. stuff, so that it forces you to look honestly at your at your weak spots and to to confront them. I think people who get praised certainly their whole lives, but also in an MFA program, and never hear otherwise, uh, it's a disservice to them because they're everyone could use some criticism and people who simply get patted on the back, I think never get to focus on, on how they could improve. Yeah, definitely. I, I've, I've been in some, some difficult workshop classes as well. And I think it's hard also if you're an undergraduate student or something, because people aren't quite good enough yet at giving the feedback in an articulate way. So it comes across yeah. as being a little bit more harsh and coarse than, you know, probably it needs to be. But. Yeah. I and mean, when I teach now, I stress that, uh, let's be honest and give feedback and try to help them improve and, and constructive criticism. Let's never get mean about it. Inevitably, you know, if you're, if you're going on and on about how something is falling short, it could come off as mean because you're simply not cushioning the blows too much. But I still think if you're, if you're earnestly trying to improve as a writer, and if you're taking class with that in mind, the only way to get better is to have people pointing out where you need improvement. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So in terms of, uh, you know, some of your big themes, I'd say your work is sort of a lot of it intersects with uh, like modern masculinity and sort of male privilege. Um, Johnny Valentine, loner, apartment, all kind of tackling different sides of it. What is it about those two subjects specifically that sort of appeals to you as a, as an author? So the two subjects were modern masculinity and male privilege. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they're probably combined even in, into one right, general yeah. overview of masculinity. Yeah. Um, I mean, I am a man, so that that's it's first-person experience. Uh, I'd say Johnny Valentine is maybe, Valentine is a little bit less, so I think Loner, Apartment, and this new one, which is called The Great, the great Man Theory, are very specifically about modern masculinity and the way, even though Apartment was set in the mid-90s, and the changing notions and modes of masculinity. Um, you know, it's just one of the things I deal with as a man. I'm not gonna write about uh, feminism from a female perspective because it's just, one, I don't really have the authority to do so, and two, it's not my lived experience. Uh, so it feels like it's a rich subject that even though it's been mined a huge amount in the past century or centuries, uh, things are changing rapidly now and it's an area that male writers should take advantage of in terms of it being finally an interesting subject to explore. Whereas in 1958, it, it was probably already feeling a little bit stale, the idea of, oh, so you're a depressed middle-aged man just having an affair. That's, you know, by, yeah. by at some point that there's only so many stories you can tell about that. But to look at um, what it's like to be, say, a college freshman boy now uh, or a, a guy in his mid-20s in the 90s who's potentially wrestling with um, homosexual feelings 
or the great man theory and middle-aged over the hill guy now in, in the modern day who is wrestling with his own impending irrelevance. These feel like fresher topics to address uh, and that male writers are uniquely positioned to, to do so. Yeah, definitely. Kind of shifting gears to uh, the love song of Johnny Valentine. Uh, I read a, a piece about you attending the Grammys kind of in preparation to write that, uh, to write that. No, book. it was after. It, it was after. after. Oh, yeah. my mistake. Well, in any case, uh, what was it? What was kind of the, the process of, uh, or how did that sort of come to be? And what was it like going to the Grammys and, and seeing? I had a friend who does PR, not for the Grammys, but his, his PR friend did. And he helped hook me up with, with a, getting to go. And, and because of, uh, of this connection, I, I got access to the, the, the celebrity red carpet entrance where they sort of go after like the initial photographs and everything like that. There's a separate entrance where they actually get into the place. Um, and so I, I was there and I was somehow there with just like one other guy. And then otherwise it was just a parade of the musicians and everyone else going through. Um, so it's sort of fun, I guess, in a teenage way of seeing these people, but, but I was already 34 by the time I was doing this and at that age already I didn't recognize the majority of the pop stars coming through and um so it was it was I guess exciting but I also didn't know who these people were and so it was right. unexciting and maybe for the best and so that, that was that maybe summed up my experience writing the book which is I certainly am aware of or was aware at that time of the world of pop culture and, and even pop music, but I wasn't a huge fan of it and, and even less so now. And I think it was, a, I had just enough distance, enough access or exposure to it and enough distance to be able to write a novel that was neither enthralled to uh, nor overly critical of with, by being sort of uh, just a, an aloof presence uh, to that subject. So it, it, that Grammy's experience felt like it summed it up. I knew some of these people were, I was there there but i didn't really know who most of them were in researching was it so did you find that it was more of a more of you discovering kind of new things or more of a nostalgia trip in researching like you know the past pop culture as far as uh musicians and teenage young adolescent stars and things like that yeah i had done a good amount of research that was both deep in the historical archives in the 1920s stars reading about them through like you know drew barrymore and michael jackson and then to the present of reading, I think my joke when I was doing interviews for this book was that I would be leafing through Tiger Beat in, in Barnes and Noble. And it looks weird for a 30 something man to be reading a stack of Tiger Beats. Uh, it doesn't look good, it's not a good look for him. Right. So I, I did this sort of historical dive, but also was doing what I could to bone up on contemporary pop stardom and what life is like for child celebrities. Justin Bieber being the main example since Johnny is you know, not, in, not modeled off him, but inspired by him and shares certain details of his life with him. Um, but I, I was more interested almost in, in the past and what this was like at all times and, and the deformations of children's psychology and children's psyches that being a celebrity would, would entail. Yeah, I uh, I ran across the the cover that you or the recording that you did of guys versus girls, and uh, I thought that was really cool. I also liked hearing the uh, 
perhaps more accomplished musician uh, performing as well. And, Alina um, Simone, yeah. yeah. It was fun was, to write cool. the lyrics for those, for those, uh, for his songs. And yeah, I just, I guess as a publicity stunt, I recorded the song itself yeah. on my own. Yeah, that was cool. Uh, would you ever consider doing a follow-up on, on Johnny Valentine? Follow-up album? You mean? Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, obviously it went, yeah, gold record. Uh, um, yeah. Not a follow-up. I, I adapted it into a TV pilot and it's, in development with MGM television now. So hopefully someday a TV show will be made of it. Yeah. And if that happened, um, and if it were successful, we would probably have other seasons that would follow him. But okay. I think yeah. I probably wouldn't write another novel. Yeah. Actually, I'll, I'll jump to the, my question about that. So you've, uh, you said you, that sold to MGM. And, and I think, what, has Loner also maybe been optioned as well? It was sold to HBO. Okay. It did not pass with them, unfortunately, but we can try to maybe sell it somewhere else at some point. So, you know, um, in sort of adapting your own work from uh, the page to, uh, to the screenwriting format, is, that must be pretty challenging. I would imagine you have, to, you have to streamline things. You have to probably be uh, not super precious about your work. Is that, is that a process that's kind of arduous for you? Yes. Um, oh, sorry. Not not yes that it's arduous so much as yes, it's, it's exactly what you have to do. Yeah. Um, it's actually fun because you get to look at your work and see things maybe a year or several years after the fact that you didn't see before that that could use revision or trimming or weren't maybe very good to begin with. Um, so it, I actually have enjoyed that part of it quite a bit. Um, but it's, you know, it can be tough to, to kill your own darlings that have already been published uh, as opposed to killing darlings that have never even seen the light of day. Uh, but it's, I, there's something satisfying about winnowing things down and, and getting them down to the bone, which screenwriting is much more so. It's, it's much more skeletal uh, in part because you cut out all the description. You also cut out all the interiority. So it's just stripped down to, to action and dialogue. And uh, it's, it's, it's a satisfying process to whittle it down like that and to see here's what the story is at its most basic. And then I hope at some point actors and set designers and directors will fill it out themselves. But your work as a writer is really is getting down to those elements. Also far better to do it yourself or to be in a position where you can do it yourself than to have someone else make those decisions for you. Well, it, it's nice. I enjoy doing it, but I think that's why they often don't let writers do it, both because it's a separate skill, usually writing fiction from writing screenplays, but also because you might be too wedded to those moments that a, a veteran screenwriter would see as this is just unnecessary and there's no space in screenplays for self-indulgence. Um, in fiction, there are all the time. There are yeah. eight-page digressions about things that don't really move the story forward and screenplays are ruthless uh, in their narrative ambition and have to be propulsive and not have any dead weight. And that's hard for fiction writers both to get used to, but especially if it's your own work to decide, I guess I have to sacrifice what I thought is a brilliant line here because yeah. it doesn't actually move the story forward. Right. Yeah. That, that would be really hard. Besides screenwriting, I know you, you also have, uh, you had a, a column in the New York Times, Future Tense, kind of covering tech, and you're also, uh, you know, publishing in McSweeney's and The New Yorker. Um, what do these other kinds of writing give you, uh, other types of writing give you that maybe writing a novel doesn't? Or what do you, what do you get out of those that you don't? Uh, well, for one, it's, it's the, the immediacy, of course, that you can get an idea and write it 
maybe for a humor piece in 45 minutes mm-hmm. and maybe get it published the next day even um, or with journalism an idea about something that's you see in the world or uh, something someone says to you at a party and you pitch your editor and you write it and it's in the paper the next week so it's it's satisfyingly immediate in a way that fiction writing is clearly not um, but also that the for, so for journalism, especially the idea of interacting with the world. Uh, fiction, of course, is for the most part, hugely solitary and you're dealing with made up characters. It's kind of nice as a journalism, even if you're just sitting at home to call people uh, and get you know, sources on the record about something, you feel a little bit more connected to people that way, let alone the idea of writing about something in the world, at, in, in the concrete real world too, that maybe even has a slight impact on the world. Um, but in both cases, humor and journalism, I'd say they access, what, what makes them less satisfying is that they play off probably you know, one part or one region of the brain. Yeah. Um, for humor, it's the part that sees comedy and irony in the world and maybe there's a few other elements that that go into it, your knowledge about the world, how the world works otherwise, um, factual knowledge, your sense of narrative and character, but primarily it's this this ironic, comedic, humorous part of the brain that works. Journalism, I'd say it's this, the the logical, how do I make sense of the world part of the brain, whatever that would be. Fiction feels like it's much more about everything. It's how you make sense of the world, it's how you see comedy in the world, but primarily it's how you feel things in the world. And um, when I was younger, I thought of fiction as a vessel for ideas. And I've come around much more to the, to the idea that it's, it's, a, it's a vessel for emotions and emotional experience. And uh, it, therefore it, it gets all of, it uses all of, your, all of your brain and all of your experience too. Whereas those other forms I think use, at least for me, only parts of the brain. I'm sure there's some, very serious journalists out there who would say it, it, it uses all their processing power um, or, you know, memoirists where it's much more about emotion too. But for me, fiction feels like the most all encompassing and comprehensive medium. Yeah, definitely. No, I think that, I think that makes sense. And I've, I've enjoyed, uh, I've enjoyed your McSweeney's work as well. Some, thank you. Some, some funny stuff in there. What do you do? You, you know, do you still carve out time to read, uh, you know, currently over COVID were you, were you reading a lot? I'd say less so, but it's also a function of having two young children of course. where it really gets limited. But I've been still keeping up and think it's necessary. I both want to out of just a desire to do so, but um, want to, uh, or, or sorry, need to as, as a way to keep the mind sharp and to see what people are doing that might be new or to revisit older stuff you might have missed. Um, I, I've always been struck when writers say that they don't read anything while they're writing a new book. Well, for one, I don't get it because for one, I'm almost always writing something. Uh, there might be occasional interregnums, but usually I'm work- at work on something. But for two, uh, you know, it takes a long time. Are you going to go two, three years without reading a book? <laughs> yeah. It seems like a, a hard thing to do as a yeah. writer to avoid the, 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 the very medium you work in. Um, I think it's to your detriment to, to avoid things. Yeah. No, I, yeah, that, that is funny. I guess, yeah, if a, if a book takes two and a half years, you're not, you're, you're missing out on a lot of, uh, a lot of great writing over, the, over that time. What, what advice would you give to us, you know, young writers, uh, 
let's say let's say someone that wants to write a book, a young aspiring novelist. Um, well, on a craft level, in terms of how, how you write or what you write, I'd say don't chase trends. Don't be overly influenced by what's hot and trendy. Write the kind of thing that only you could write. This is famous advice by Toni Morrison, among others. Write the book that only you could write. Write, write the book that you'd want to see that does not exist yet. And that's, I think, the only good advice for what to write about. Mm -hmm. But also, that means how to write it, too. And it means writing in a way that suits your talents the best. It doesn't simply mean you write a novel about a guy from the Midwest who now lives in Milwaukee, because that's only the book that only you could write. It means yeah. write it in a way that reflects your sensibility and your sensibility alone. Um, and have faith that your sensibility, if, if done right, will interest other people too, rather than thinking I'm going to copy this kind of writer because he or she is, is successful and this is what writing therefore looks like now. Because um, in the end, you'll, you'll probably fail at copying them, but more so it'll, if you do do it, it'll be a pale imitation and it won't, be, it won't actually play to your strengths. Um, and then beyond that, I'd say try to, I guess, similarly tune out the business part of it and just work and, and write and produce something. Keep reading, read somewhat widely, you know, read beyond your, your obvious points of interest, but also recognize maybe you're interested in a certain kind of writing. This is what you want to do and really get heavily into that kind of writing and read more of those and it'll start rubbing off on you. I still think a lot of what you read from ages 15 to 25 has a lot more impact on you, I, I believe, than from what you read from 25 to 35. That, that's the ages when you're really being formed and molded and um, read stuff that you might not think is what you want to be reading because it still might rub off on you in some interesting way. Yeah. Now, is that, I, I was wondering, for the purpose of this podcast, that's a question that I, I have to ask, but for you, is that kind of a, is that an irritating question to get like advice for young writers? Is that, I'm sure it's common, but is that, is that one that you're no, sick no, to death? I, no, no, because first of all, I, I believe in paying it forward, you know, unless I'm happy to, I, I got plenty of help along the way too, from different people, some of whom owed me nothing and just were, near strangers offering me advice, some of whom were professors or, or other mentor figures. But um, no, the, I, I remember once going to a screening of a Woody Allen movie in college and he was there. So he did a Q&A after and someone asked him, what advice do you have for young people who want to get into the film? And the audience started booing the question because it's so open-ended and broad. <laughs> so I've always remembered yeah. that idea of that it, it, where do you, how do you focus on hand, answering that question? Yeah. Cause it's so broad, but I think saying, write what you want to write and what you're good at writing is, is a fine answer that, that narrows it down and, and, um, and read of course, but you know, read in a somewhat strategic fashion where you're reading to not just cause this is fun and this looks like a good book, but this might be instrumental in, in helping me decide how to, what, who I am as a writer. Yeah, I, I feel bad for the person that got booed at a Woody Allen movie. I don't think they probably, <laughs> yeah. probably, did, probably didn't see that coming. Yeah. Well, they didn't get canceled now, so he did. That's so they, true. They, they yeah, got the last true. laugh. For sure, for well, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What do you, uh, you've mentioned earlier uh, what you're working on now. Could you, could you remind me what that is? Yeah, it's project? called The Green Man Theory. Um, I don't want to say too much because it's Understood. still not too much. But um, uh, just a middle-aged adjunct professor in New York 
whose life is spiraling out of control uh, as the country spirals out of control, maybe is, is a way of describing it. All right. Sounds right in my sweet spot. I'll, I'll look forward to that. Uh, anything you'd like to plug? Apartment obviously is available now. Yeah, that just uh, whatever people want to, they can look me up. <laughs> yeah, fair, fair. Uh, apartment, great book. I, I was really excited to have you on. Uh, I was a little little intimidated. I hope I hope I uh, hope I did all right today. I, I know you've been interviewed by uh, Forbes and LA Times and uh, probably even NPR. So uh, I wanted to be prepped. Not at all, Adam. I hope I wasn't too intimidating. Uh, <laughs> no, this is fun for me and actually a nice break from the uh, the moving that we've been doing the past week. So, you know, I, I much prefer this to snaking a toilet at 10 in the morning. That's high praise. I'm going to put that on the, on some, some promotional stuff. Well, I, I appreciate you talking to me today, Teddy. Uh, and uh, yeah, I look forward to reading the next one. Great. Take care, Adam. Right, yeah, take care. Thank you. Next week, we'll have Mirren Fader on sports. See you then.